Welcome to the Payments Unpacked podcast. My name is Mike Chambers and today I'm really pleased to be joined by Teresa Connors from Payments Matters and formerly of NatWest. Now if you check out the LinkedIn bio for Teresa, you'll see somebody called Lee McNabb describing Teresa as this. She's simply superb, a wealth of experience in the financial services industry with a huge network to call upon. A true payments professional with an infectious personality, a practical approach, an authentic approach to leadership, and above all else, a great personality. Well, Teresa, with those kind words from Lee, I wonder if we could perhaps ask you to introduce yourself in your own words. Oh, I don't know how I can follow that, in all honesty. Um, clearly, I paid Lee to write that as well. Let's, <laughs> let, let's be honest. Um, but I'm, a, I'm an advisor in the payments industry. My background, as you say, is formerly in that West. I'm kind of like, you know, I'm a banker, if you like, at heart, but I have spent time very recently, a couple of years with a technology company. So I've got quite a broad lens around the payments landscape. Um, I'm passionate, and I know that's an overused word, so I'm sorry, but I'm really passionate about the customer proposition and strategy. And I think that's, that's the best I can say. Fantastic. So we've had a bit about what Lee thinks about you and a little few words from yourself. And um, I guess people can also check you out on LinkedIn. But let's, let's start today's podcast with a really relevant question to today's environment, because, you know, we know that trading conditions are just never perfect. But at the moment, things are really happening in our environment and our economy, which are you know, really challenging. And, and I guess the question to you is, given that trading conditions are never perfect, what challenges do we see in the current operating environment? Well, as you're right, there, there are lots of challenges. And I'm going to call out two of the big ones that I think are facing us in the next 12 months. And that's cost of living, the challenges of cost of living and the impact on regulation. Turning first to cost of living, we're in a deepening recession. The OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility, expects that real post-tax household income will fall by 4.3% next year. Now, to put that into context, because you think, oh, 4.3, you know, what, what does that mean? What does it feel like? It's actually the biggest fall since comparable records began in 1956. So we're going to further feel the pinch. And that, of course, changes consumer behaviour. People are spending less and they're more mindful in their purchases, which then has a knock-on effect, of course, to businesses. So, you know, looking at businesses, there are about five and a half million small and medium sized businesses in the UK, and they account for roughly two thirds of UK employment. So a key player in a recession, the risk of business failure is, of course, higher. And regrettably, unfortunately, already, we're already seeing the number of registered insolvencies rise. In June 22, it was 40 percent higher than the same period last year in 2021 and 15% higher than pre-pandemic levels as well. In more good news, the cost of supply is increasing, and that's transportation and shipping especially, and that affects domestic and international trade. And then looking at our world of payments, in particular for cost of living, um, from a fintech lens, for valuation and funding has been affected. Valuations have shifted. Arguably though, they're more realistic, especially at early stage, and in some good news, um, that more realistic assessment means comparatively less pressure to meet unrealistically high expectations. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a, a silver lining, if you like. 
When it comes to funding, that's decreased. But as we're seeing on a day by day basis on the news feeds, um, money is still being raised and in significant quantities as well. So it's, you know, there's still money, investment monies out there. So away now from fintech and going to the other end of the scale and to banks, you, know, you might think, oh, look, isn't it great? Base rates have all increased and therefore bank margins must have increased too. Well, you know, they might have done a little bit, but that's not setting off the liabilities such as bad and doubtful debts. And banks still have the challenge of tech debt and an uneven playing field in some aspects of their propositions. So what does that mean? So it means that more than ever, all businesses, regardless of size, need to control costs and build financial resilience. And you say, yeah, well, that's nice, Teresa. You know, you, you'd, you'd say that every year, wouldn't you? I would, but actually it's more pertinent going forward than it ever has been. The other challenge I mentioned was regulation. And this is for all market players. The volume, breadth and depth of regulation is enormous, demanding loads of time and resource. And sort of one live example, because I can never have a conversation without talking about the FCA consumer duty, Mike, is the FCA consumer duty. So a really quick recap on what it is. It requires firms to demonstrate that customer interest is really genuinely at the heart of the business. It's pervasive, you know, it's not just some compliance exercise over there that we really don't need to worry about. It spans strategy, communications, customer support, product management and development, and partnerships, those that you deal with as well. It's very much looking down the whole payment value chain. There are kind of two paths to consumer duty. There are cross-cutting rules and there are expected outcomes. The cross-cutting rules drive sort of culture and conduct. So you want, you've got to evidence that you act in good faith that you avoid foreseeable harm and that you enable and support retail customers to pursue their financial objectives. Now, I'm sure your experience is really similar to mine in that of all the companies I deal with in the payment space, I haven't found anybody that doesn't meet one of those cross-cutting rules. The thing though is to evidence it. Yeah, that, that's, that's the key here. You can't just say, yeah, we do that. It's kind of like, and here's the proof. So, so that, that's taking up a lot of time and resource. The four accepted outcomes to prove that customers at the heart of the business is the product and services outcome, price and value, consumer understanding and consumer support. So in a nutshell, the FCA, in terms of the duty, are going to measure fair value. So do customers pay a price for products and services that's fair? Yet how do you judge what fair is? And then when it comes to it, if you're relying on, say, a legacy book, or a cash cow, is that still representing fair value? So you, know, you have to show that assessment and that proof. You also have to prove that customers have sold and received products and services that have been designed to meet their needs. So it's not just product development or you know, activity, it's product management as well. So that on an ongoing basis, customers receive what it is they, they, that they signed up to and a good level of support as well because the next one is, is customers receiving a good service and high levels of satisfaction. You don't just sell something and then run away and never speak to your customers again. You, know, you make sure uh, that, it, that it's what they, that they, they continue to enjoy the product as intended. And finally, confidence should be increased. Customer confidence in the form of providing information via the right channel at the right time so that customers can make effective, timely and properly informed decisions. 
Now, I've, I've given you a really high level sort of you know, broad brush approach there on consumer duty, but evidence is key. And by the 31st of July next year, 2023, for new products, you have to have that evidence in place should the FCA come knocking on your door and ask to see it. And for your closed book products, a further 12 months to July 2024. Now, all of that's a huge undertaking, right, for any business. And it's just one, just one of the many regulatory initiatives that's, 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 that's facing the industry. And I know I said there'd be just two for a cost of living and regulation, but also there's also combating fraud, which is like a never ending gift. Obviously, I'm joking, but it's, a, it's a never ending fight. So, so they, are, they are some of the big things that are facing businesses. Thank you just so much. They are topics that are going to come to the fore through the next 12 months, aren't they? And we look at that difficult trading environment here in the United Kingdom and you've drilled down into the consumer duty um, piece. We're really interesting as that that comes through for initially for the 1st of July. But you finished off what you said around uh, talking about fraud. Uh, and I, I, it just reminded me as you as you sort of preface that your thoughts on fraud that of the old uh, Citibank um, tagline, the city never sleeps. And, and, you know, the, the, the thing it rings in my mind was the fact that fraudster never sleeps. It's a continual game of whack-a-mole for the banking industry and the payments environment to squash and thwart the fraudster. So picking up on that fraud point that you talked about, Teresa, uh, we talked about, uh, you know, how, how things the industry might have done. Let, let's think about confirmation of payee and just get some views from you about COP, confirmation of payee, and, and how consumers might be protected going forward from the um, acts of the fraudster. Sure, and whack-a-mole, by the way, is a fantastic example. You know, kind of like where, where you, you suppress a fraud somewhere and it pops up somewhere else. It's terribly annoying. So um, confirmation of payee, um, let's talk about that in the first instance. That confirmation of payee is, of course, the name checking service for UK-based payments, giving customers greater assurance that they're paying money to the intended recipient. It's a really useful tool in the fight against fraud and APP scams. And APP scams are authorised push payment scams. Basically, it's where you're tricked into sending money to a fraudster. Horrid. So confirmation of um, payee coverage is incomplete at the moment um, because it's not been adopted yet by most PSPs. Most of the larger providers have it in place and, yeah, and that does give you an awful lot of market coverage, let, let's be fair. But there are another, another load of PSPs, numbering about 400, who are mandated to have it in place before the 31st of October 2024. So it's incomplete coverage for the next 18 months or so. In good news, though, confirmation of payee appears to be having a positive impact because UK finance data for H222, sorry, H122, I beg your pardon, uh, show for the first time a year-on-year -year reduction in, in APP fraud, both for volume down 6% and value down 17%. Now, obviously, if there's just one victim of fraud, that's one too many. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just too high. But it is encouraging that those sort of that data indicators suggest that fuller industry coverage should really improve the situation. And just very quickly, hand in hand with confirmation of, of payee is CRM, Contingent Reimbursement Model, which I really hate the name of. It's just an awful, awful name. But essentially the banks what are that good at acronyms, is, aren't they? Everything's got to have an acronym, really so is, CRM, why not? Yeah. Go on. Despite the acronym, tell me about that. 
Exactly. And a lot of them have C in them, by the way, but, you know, that's weird too. But it's a voluntary code which potentially reimburses victims of fraud. And it applies to payments made on faster payments and chats, as well as on us payments. And on us payments are payments where the sending and receiving PSP are part of the same group. Now, the code is not a panacea for reimbursement, okay? The overall level is below of reimbursement, it's below 50%. And partly that's because there's not universal either take up or interpretation of the code. So depending on where somebody banks, the protection can vary. So that's not, you know, that's not an ideal proposition when it comes to it. Um, you said to me though, looking forward, what else can be done to be, to, to, you know, to, to bolster protection? And the PSR, the Payment Systems Regulator, who are of course the regulator responsible for protecting people and businesses when they use payment systems, are consulting on APP fraud combat measures with the objectives of improving the PSP performance in relation to reimbursement and prevention via reputational incentives. And I'll attempt to distill it at a super high level, okay? There are three measures under consultation. Measure one involves the publication of scam data. Measure two tasks the industry with greater intelligence sharing. And measure three deals with reimbursement. A, a quick closer look at measures one and three. So under measure one, that's one with the scam data, okay? The 12 largest PSPs in the UK and two in Northern Ireland will provide six monthly data. And remember, this data is gonna be made public, okay? And it's going to disclose the portion of APP scammed customers who have left fully or partially out of pocket, sending PSP scam rates and receiving PSP scam rates letter of recovery. Now this is still under consultation, so some, some of this will change as, as, um, as feedback comes in and stuff evolves. Measure three on reimbursement, and that aims for re reimbursement in all but exceptional cases. So more victims will get their money back, great. It also seeks to improve the level of protection to scam victims. So essentially there's greater consistency and protection, which is a nod back to the beautifully named CRM code. So that, you know, we, we have parity there and across, across protection. And then finally, incentivization to prevent scams because, and I quote, because responsibility for allowing fraudulent payments is the responsibility of both the sending and receiving banks or building societies. And I will come back to that. Um, so, so what's protected then? Basically, payments of over £100 and bringing that to life, that accounts for about 75% of APP frauds. Reimbursement will be made within 48 hours, subject to an excess of no more than £35, and you'll have up to 13 months to make a claim. So, so that, that feels good from a consumer point of view. So the expectation is that all APP scam victims using faster payments will be fully inversed with very, very few exceptions. So just, just as an aside, chaps and on us payments are out of scope, okay? The exceptions will include clearly scans where the consumer's involved in the fraud or where they have acted with gross negligence. And the exception for gross negligence is actually quite a high bar and it's expected to apply in only a small minority of the cases and it would apply where a consumer is vulnerable. It's also proposed that the cost of reimbursement are split equally between sending and receiving PSBs, but you can have dispute management processes to better reflect sort of, you know, the steps that each party took. And in terms of the timeline, Royal Assent, in the summer of 23, of implementation at the end of, sorry, in the middle of 23 for Royal Assent, 
and implementation at the end of 23. Now, all of that and a lot more because it's a lot broader than that. OK, clearly that's prompting a lot of debate within the industry. The first thing to say is that all providers can absolutely agree that customer protection is paramount. OK, but some aspects of the conversation of the consultation are thorny and they carry potentially unintended consequences. And I just want to sort of look, look at very quickly at three of those areas. Um, the first one is vulnerable customers. Now, rightly, vulnerable customers get a high degree of protection, of course. Okay? The consultation proposes that PSPs would need to investigate a consumer's vulnerability only in a small proportion of cases where gross negligence is suspected and also encourages that the excess, which is up to, up to £35, yeah, that would be exempt for that customer type. Now, that can be challenging for some providers. If you're a bank with a comparatively high proportion of vulnerable customers, and remember, this scam data is being published, okay? That could potentially drive, drive, drive a number of things. It could give a distorted view of scam rates and protection because you've got a higher degree, comparatively, of vulnerable customers. It could increase reimbursement costs for exactly that reason, which could in turn prompt banks to look at their business models, you know, which would, you know, that cost probably has to be recouped somewhere. It, will also, it could also disproportionately damage a provider's reputation, affecting their brand and their commercial activity. If somebody looks and goes, crikey, look at their scam rates over there. But without the context of what's going through the books from a customer base or other type of payment, payment value, what have you, that, that, could, be, that could be quite disproportionately damaging. In extremists as well, and I do say it's an extremist, it could also affect a provider's willingness to offer services to vulnerable customers. And I'm sure that that isn't an intended outcome from the consultation. The other thing that said, I said earlier, the PSR stated that allowing fraudulent payment is responsibility for sending and receiving bank. OK, so prima facie, right, that, that's true. However, it's only part of the fraud journey. For me, the payment journey is the execution of the decision to purchase. And in the case of fraud, harm is already in play, right? Because you're, all you're going to do is go, I've, I've, I've seen this over here, I assume it's all lovely because you know I've made that emotional decision to purchase. So therefore I just go and the, ex the payment is the execution of that. Now, Treasury Select Committee earlier in December, Pay UK supported mandatory uh, reimbursement, but crucially said it has to be hand in hand working with protection and prevention, working with banks and building societies, but critically social media, government and telephony companies. Santander have been vocal on this publicly as well, urging the public to address the underlying issues of fraud in a joined up manner, bringing tech companies, social media companies, you know, telecoms together, initially just to share data. And I think that would have a huge, huge impact. Now I do know that regulators are making progress with working with big tech companies in a number of different areas, including fraud. You know, a couple of examples, the online safety bill and the upcoming FSA consultation on the presence of big tech firms and their effect on consumers, you know, particularly in the payment and the retail sector. Notwithstanding that, though, in these wider initiatives, today it's largely banks who are just one party, the execution party, in the end-to-end -end fraud journey 
that are predominantly picking up the bill for fraud. And you, you've got to look across and go, hmm, it, it, is, is that fair? Is it right? Is it sustainable? And then finally, one that's really, you know, very close to my heart is customer proposition. So another thorny issue. So to protect customers, which is all right and good, but also to avoid the reputational incentives of the publication of fraud data and a potential increased cost of reimbursement, there's potential for payments to be delayed while fraud, techs, while fraud checks are undertaken, especially for high value payments. Now, that could really negatively impact, impact the customer proposition. Customers and consumers are used to speed and anything that's less than appropriate friction, friction could impair propositions. There's also, in my mind, there's an extra liability to the provider because say it's a non-fraudulent payment, okay, and it's slowed down and therefore you've missed something. You've missed, you, you know, you, you've, you've not won a contract, say, because it was a timely payment in that respect. You've not received goods or services or indeed your reputation is impacted. Well, Therese wrote me five quid and my God, you know, it took, it took, took, a, took a while for that to arrive. Um, so I think we have to be quite careful here on, on that balance between, between sort of protection and the customer proposition. So it, in summary, it's great that COP is starting to have a positive effect. And it's great that regulators are really shining a light on the sort of the, on the scourge that is fraud. But we need, I think we need to be careful not to handicap those in scope of the, those in scope of the PSR consultation. And I think what we really need, we need to form a battalion with other industries who are also stakeholders in that end-to-end -end fraud journey, because that would materially bolster prevention and reduce customer harm. Really great insights there, Teresa. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion, hasn't there, about the liability between the sending bank and the receiving bank in faster payments. But you started to draw out the fact that actually there are other people in that payments journey. Should they not be involved in this process? And how do we deal with whether it's gaffers or whether it's, you know, other payments provi uh, uh, providers in, in that overall journey? So that was quite interesting because it extends the debate about who should be liable for these transactions. And and I also liked your comments there about friction. You know, we used to talk about faster payments means faster fraud. We're now talking about adding a, a sprinkling of friction to make sure that the payments are good when they get to the other end. But, you know, how much friction, what sort of friction in a world where we are used to instantaneous payments between two parties? You know, we've become very accustomed to that uh, since the launch of faster payments. But some insights there that really, really helpful. So thank you for that. I wanted to change chat tack a little bit for, for, for a third question, but it's a final question you'll be uh, relieved to hear. Um, and it's around about sustainability. And that's something I know has been close to your heart for a long time. And I just was interested if you could give a sort of a, a bit of a, a, a viewpoint on, on where we are and what progress has been made around that topic and the, quite a wide topic of sustainability. I'd be delighted to, because you rightly say it's, it's been on, it's been very top of my personal and therefore my professional agenda for, for quite some time. We are seeing progress, but you know, more needs to be done and at pace. Yeah, if we, we talk a lot about ESG and a few years back, arguably ESG was a byword for CSR. You know, we all went off and planted a few trees and painted a few community centres, you know, and, and that was it. But climate change has really brought a new focus. I mean, this year alone in the UK, I think we've had the hottest day on record ever. 
And most certainly last week, we had some of the coldest days ever on, on record. So, so, so we're, we're very definitely seeing change. Now, the, the big thing in most experts' view is that it's carbon emissions that are really driving that change and accelerating it too. Uh, and carbon, just the geeky bit, sorry, um, but carbon is a greenhouse gas, yeah, which traps heat from the sun. Without greenhouse gases, that, that heat would escape the Earth's atmosphere and go back into space. And activities such as, but not limited to, burning fossil fuels and deforestation, that's changing the balance between how much carbon is in the air and how much carbon is stored in plants and crucially in the ocean to keep the, to keep the planet's temperature from rising or at least to keep it in abeyance. Now, as a payment industry, obviously we, we contribute to, to, to the environment and to an environmental change via the products and services that we offer and how they are delivered. So, so ju just a couple of kind of like, you know, data points and research pieces that have that have came out uh, back in 2017. Um, and I doubt it's changed hugely since this, but forgive me if it has. The Dutch National Bank researched how different compo components of the cards business contributed to the environment. And it found there was a big impact on greenhouse gas emissions made from cars through energy usage, transport and disposal. And that sounds weird, I know, when it comes to cars, particularly the disposal bit, but because a lot of that impact, right, is due to point of sale terminals. And it's kind of materials that they're made from the energy dis um, consumption and how you dispose of them. So, yeah, in the, so if we could lengthen the life of electronic acceptance devices, terminals, computers, smartphones, payment cards, that would have a material environmental impact. And still for lens on cards, and, and I'm sorry for, for those that in the cards business that are listening, but still for lens on cards, the British Retail Consortium, which is the trade association for retail for UK retail businesses, has calculated that on average an estimated one million tons of CO2 CO2 is produced annually from debit and credit card payments. Now by comparison. There's an environmental case for open banking account to account payments here because with fewer data stops, stakeholders and speed gained the BRC estimate that a sort of an instant payment would produce 80% less CO2 compared to cars. Now that is just one measure before we all get carried away, right? It is just one measure, but, but it just shows that the overall effect and that in fact, there are some solutions out there. And so that I don't just look like I've been card bashing forever, let's have a look at cash. Okay, so a study undertaken by Link a few years ago found that the main environmental impacts for cash were cash centres, because there's quite a lot of them and they produce, you know, they use a lot of energy. The exportation of cash on our roads and lorries and using fuel. The operation and maintenance of ATMs, coin processing centres and similar type equipment. And also cash processing by retailers. So I, I hope I've, I've kind of given a little bit of a balance there, away from cards. But in terms of what is being done, there are there are a couple of a couple of initiatives. Um, I was speaking to a European bank last year who they have an ESG assessment tool, and they give preferential terms to corporates who have strong ESG credentials. So they're really putting their money where their mouth is, or at least their ethos where their mouth is, and I think that's fantastic. 
Um, Santander in recent days have announced a six-month pilot. They're putting self-service machines into some of their branches so that cards can be disposed of in a more environmentally friendly way. It seems to crunch them all up and then you can even use the recycled little bits of plastic as well for, for other things. And that's important because um, they estimate that there are 92 million debit cards and 60 million credit cards in the UK. So my goodness me, things like that are needed. And when it comes to, you know, if you, if you take a card out of your wallet or whatever, you've still got a physical card in your wallet rather than an electronic wallet, the, the, the construction of what cards are made from is really bad for the environment as well. That they're bad in manufacture and disposal. So again, Santander, and I promise you, I don't have any links with Santander, but they, they just seem at the moment to be especially good in this space. They have said that by 2025, all of their cards in the UK, Spain, Portugal and Poland will be made of sustainable materials, which I think is, is, is brilliant. And, you know, how good is that? Um, NatWest and others have a carbon tracker and planner tool so that as an individual and as a business, you can see your carbon footprint and it will give you tips and suggestions on how to reduce it. So that's good news. And also I think it was last week I read that Barclays has announced it's upping its investment in climate tech startups with a specific focus on decarbonisation opportunities. And then finally, and sort of coming away from the banks, a non-bank example, um, I saw that Klarna in response to, because you know, consumers are far more interested now on where has something come from, how sustainable is it, you know, how much, how much, what effect is this thing having on the environment that I'm purchasing. So Klarna is, is, is uh, using data from a company called Clarity AI to promote environmentally conscious brands to its network of shoppers. And initially, they're going to focus on the very power hungry consumer electronics industry because that's expected to produce about 14% of global emissions by 2040. And that's up from just 3% today. So that's significant. So I feel like I've rattled on a bit there. Sorry, but you know, this is something that's really important to me. And, and in closing, I, I would, would just make the plea that, you know, personally and professionally, we can all contribute here. We can all help to slow down climate change and the damage to the planet. Uh, and it's, it's a fight alongside fraud and other things that we really have got to get hold of. Uh, Teresa, thank you. You know, at the beginning of the, this podcast, I called out Lee McNabb's comments about you on, on your LinkedIn profile. And it talked about knowing what you're talking about. It talked about passion in the, in the subject you talked about. And that's really, really come over. Uh, really strongly throughout this podcast, but particularly in this final uh, question around um, ESG. So uh, really good to hear your views on that. Um, I'm in a virtual card environment. I don't carry a card. There are only two places in the UK that I need a card. One's the M6 toll uh, because they don't like people holding their phones out of the terminal at the toll booth. And second is a leading supermarket who has a ridiculous £250 Apple Pay limit. Uh, on their transactions. So the only two places I use a physical card, but even though I'm in a virtual card, my banks still send me my plastic debit card to, to, to use. So um, we need to think about how we move forward with those cards. And uh, there's that great program on BBC, uh, I think it's Dr. Hannah Fry, uh, around how, how things made and everything else. And one of the episodes in the current series, it's on iPlayer, is about the debit card. It's amazing um, in terms of uh, the makeup of a debit card. So if you've not seen that on the BBC, uh, search that out on uh, BBC iPlayer. 
So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. We've heard about imperfect trading conditions in the United Kingdom. We've thought about thwarting, thwarting the fraudster. And we've had a, a final think through and a challenging think through in terms of sustainability. So thank you so much for sharing those things. As we close out, what's the best way, Teresa, to find out more about you and how can people connect with you? I think LinkedIn, thank you first of all for those kind words, um, but I think LinkedIn actually, if anybody wants to contact me, might via LinkedIn, they're more than welcome. Fantastic. So Teresa Connors on LinkedIn, you've heard it there to make sure you, you connect. Um, Teresa, thanks once more for, for appearing on today's uh, podcast. Thank you also to everyone else that's listening. Um, if you haven't done so yet, subscribe to the Payments Unpacked podcast. You'll find us on Spotify, you'll find us on Apple and a few other podcast platforms as well. And while you're doing that, don't forget to subscribe to the Payments Unpacked newsletter at payments-unpacked.com. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.